It's 1970 in the bustling metropolis of Zurich, the capital of Switzerland. A commotion is beginning around a certain art gallery near the city center. There's nothing special about the gallery itself. Month to month, the rotation of featured artists changes, but this month, the display window is showing some strange artworks that are shocking the passing pedestrians. Mothers shield their children's eyes as they scurry past. Construction workers pause, confused, and resume walking. And the devout Catholics, on their way back from church, stop, gaze at the artwork displayed, cross themselves, and spit at the display window in disgust. The next day, a woman walking home with her groceries is so outraged that she grabs a tub of yogurt from her grocery bag and chucks it at the gallery. Fresh yogurt exploding on the glass and sidewalk in protest. Another day, a particularly industrious man thinks the gallery hasn't gotten the message yet. The art is still up after all, and the gallery owner is now in the routine of wiping the spit off the glass at the end of the day. But this will show him. The disgruntled man picks up some dog excrement and smears it on the window, obstructing our view of the paintings. Whose art can cause such commotion in this Catholic metropolis? The artist's name is H.R. Giger, and in 10 years, he will reach international fame when he wins an Oscar for designing the most frightening alien creature that film audiences have ever seen. How does someone develop a style of art that causes such intense reactions in people? The artist must be some psychopath, right? Intentionally pushing buttons for shock value. Or maybe the fault is with the closed-minded audience. Have you ever felt so outraged by a piece of art that you wanted to hurl yogurt at it? Or worse? And that's what we're diving into today. Not yogurt, of course, but the dark and surreal art of H.R. Giger. We need to find out what makes him tick. And how did he develop a style of art that ventures so far away from most people's expectations? This is Creative Codex. I am MJ Dorian. Let's begin. Part 1. The Boy in Black In our 21st century, it's rare to find art that still truly shocks people. Art that when seen for the first time causes the pupils to dilate in arousal and the face to grimace in confusion. H.R. Giger is such an artist. His imagery confuses, arouses, inspires, and shocks. Often these reactions can be elicited by the same painting, and even within the same person. But are people overreacting? Well, if we're being honest, things do get weird quick in Giger paintings. Some of the recurring imagery you're likely to come across 
in his art includes strange human-like creatures with horns, upside-down crucifixes, hypersexualized poses, skulls, a lot of skulls, human fetuses, strange machines that seem to integrate seamlessly with their human hosts, that kind of stuff. But for as dark as it is, there is beauty and elegance in its conception. There is great care and love in how these worlds are presented to us. And there is always the sense that the human-like creatures in these environments are participating willingly. It's helpful to know that H.R. Giger was a huge admirer of Salvador Dali, who we covered in episode 7. Giger and Dali share a key belief about art. The artist should never censor their own unconscious imagery. Whatever the association may be, whether it's blasphemous to a religion or shockingly erotic to the local community, an artist should present the world of his or her unconscious content, and it is the role of the public to interpret it. This is the goal of traditional surrealism, and it is why Dolly's work would occasionally offend audiences as well. But I don't think there ever was a painting of Dolly's that elicited the one word you will most often hear from casual observers of Giger's art, the word evil. This painting is evil. This is satanic. And that's when they throw the dog excrement. How did Giger develop this uniquely dark style? Was he painting skulls and androids as a five-year-old? How seriously does he take these symbols? Well, here is a quote from Giger while he was describing the controversy over his painting entitled The Spell from 1974. Spell 2 is one of my most intense paintings. At that moment in time, I was very much interested in magic and witchcraft. Incidentally, I would like to stress that I have nothing at all to do with Satan and that I detest cruelty to animals. The Spell Temple series created 25 years ago contains symbols which certain fools use to try to bring me into a relationship with black magic an association I strongly decline. So, according to Giger, the intention of the artist gives us context for what the imagery means. We can actually better understand Giger through his early years, before he predominantly worked in this style. Which brings us to a picturesque town in the green mountains of eastern Switzerland. Giger was born in Chur, spelled C-H-U-R. It's a beautiful place. If you have ever seen early Disney movies, Pinocchio or Beauty and the Beast, you can really imagine the characters living in such a town. Chur is considered Switzerland's oldest town. Cars are forbidden from driving on many of its stone brick streets. The history of the earliest known settlements uh, dates humans in the area as far back as the Bronze Age and Iron Age. That's about 1300 BC. Now Giger doesn't often talk about her, but he does occasionally give us glimpses into his growing up there. He says, In her, Switzerland, the word artist is a term of abuse, combining drunkard, whoremonger, layabout, and simpleton in one. 
unquote. Now, despite the town's lack of support for artists, it does seem Giger had a healthy childhood there. He goes on to say, I was attracted to the opposite sex from a very early age. The places that interested me most were the blackest. Hence, from the moment I was allowed to dress myself, I wore black. The darkest place in the house was under the table of a windowless room, which I made my playroom. There I played with my railway, bears and puppets, and with homemade weapons such as bows and arrows, knuckle dusters, daggers, and other fascinating objects. I would have done anything for the fair sex, but the young ladies weren't the least bit interested in my toys. I was painfully shy, and often hid in the cellar or the stables. I was ashamed of the short trousers I had to wear because I thought my thighs were too fat. Among the most exciting events of my youth was the circus. The smaller and more intimate it was, the more the child entertainers thrilled me. Best of all were the turns on the trapeze and the high wire. Above all, it amazed me how the male athletes could hide their sex so well that they looked like girls. I went to almost every performance, using the endless variety of secret entrances that we children had to discover in order to get in without pain. Thus, my place was usually underneath the seats of the audience. I had a wonderful childhood, full of secrets and romantic settings my parents let me play. The only nuisances were the domestic helps, some as dumb as they come with their attempts at discipline and their compulsive tidiness. Even at kindergarten age, I found some of the girls beautiful and would stand in front of their houses for hours but in kindergarten itself, talking to girls was highly disapproved of, and I was soon nicknamed a lady killer. It was a Catholic kindergarten with a lot of praying. If you were naughty, you were shown a picture of Christ's face streaming with blood, and were told that you were to blame for his suffering. It's curious, nowhere in the mentions of these early years, do you find some traumatic events or dark and twisted past which one might assume inspires the imagery in Giger's art? Which, in a way, makes him all the more unique, right? That his mind fixated on these symbols and this made him all the more strange to the devout Catholic people in his Swiss mountain town. Giger's father, Hans, said once in an interview, it astounds me that I should have produced a so-called artist, unquote. There were no immediate artists in the family. Giger's parents weren't particularly inclined toward creative fields. And the only artistic influences Giger had he could look up to were certain unconventional school teachers. Giger goes on to say, Unprofitable was my father's favorite adjective for art. He thought that contemporary art could never even earn you a basic living. For lack of good grades, therefore, I was sent at the age of 18, two years before my final exams, as a trainee to a Grissons architect. 
This was prompted by my love of drawing, and, in the event of bad times in the future, guaranteed me a safe profession, construction droughtsman. Unquote. As a boy, Giger worked in his father's pharmacy. He would often be tasked with delivering pills or leeches to the customers on his bicycle around town. When he wasn't making deliveries, he would hang around the pharmacy, entertaining himself in the basement with his blowtorch, experimenting with making weapons. He recounts a unique event when he acquired a six-foot-long copper cable from a local construction site and began to excitedly work with it in the cellar of the pharmacy. I got my petrol blowtorch working, first burning the tar and then melting the lead, which I subsequently turned into weaponry. The pharmacy's steel suppository molds were ideal for making revolver bullets. The knuckle dusters I cast in plaster molds from wax models. Unfortunately, I had chosen as my workplace the cellar underneath the pharmacy, which had no ventilating windows. Utterly engrossed in my work like an alchemist's assistant, and after hours of melting lead and burning tar, I suddenly heard my father's voice. On no other occasion did I hear him so incensed. I saw a white pharmacist's coat lunging at me through a thick, sooty smoke such as I knew only from the London fogs of Edgar Wallace. I rapidly grasped the situation and ran for my life. I nevertheless caught a few blows around the ear as I rushed past. I hid for two days. In that time, the pharmacy had to be cleaned by every hand available. When my father, who had first thought the pharmacy was on fire, realized I was the culprit, his fear was replaced by anger. Office, storeroom, poison cupboard, each room with its thousands of bottles, all were black. Everything was covered with a sticky, oily film. It seems the young Giger had a penchant for inadvertently causing trouble. He wasn't a rebel rouser, per se. He just had very eccentric interests for a young boy. As he mentions, he had a fixation for machines, and especially guns. During his school years in Her, he gave a notorious lecture, Giger says. My first lecture at the Her Gymnasium, on a subject of my own choice, was naturally on the history of the revolver. I stood up in front of the class, utterly unprepared, and knew only that the word revolver came from the Latin revolver, in other words, to revolve or roll. I also knew that Samuel Colt had been the first to invent this six-round handgun with a revolving barrel, for self-loading with priming cap, gunpowder, seal, and lead bullet. The lecture was brief since, after these few words, I got out my weapons collection. I had brought along some 20 different pistols and revolvers, which I now handed out to my fellow students. Everyone began aiming at everyone else, the teacher went pale, and, in the tumult that followed, sought in vain to collect in the dangerous objects. That was my shortest lecture. Because they can kill, revolvers and pistols immediately make you think negative. But they can also fascinate you, as they fascinated me as an eight-year-old boy. I was particularly struck by a small Mauser pistol of my father's. 
Pistols are especially dangerous because you can't tell from the outside whether they are loaded. Even when the magazine is empty, there may still be a bullet in the barrel. These early fixations of Giger's mind are useful to us in many ways. They give us a sense that his brain was already leaning towards certain preferences and sources of influence, even as a child, which later blossom into unique artworks in his 20s. During this time in his 20s, he officially begins a career as an interior designer. In 1966, he receives his diploma in interior architecture and industrial design from the Zurich Academy of Applied Arts. It is also at the academy that he meets and falls in love with Lee Tobler, a drama student, who would later become a model and theater actress in Switzerland. After graduating, Giger and Lee move in together in a shared apartment in a condemned building in Zurich. Notoriously, the building had no heat, and apparently also cockroaches, that repulsed Giger. Giger and Lee continued making small steps in their respective careers. Giger begins an assistantship position with sculptor and designer Andreas Christen, who happens to work for the furniture company Knoll. All this time he dabbles in strange illustrations, and his friends convince him to send a few of these ink pieces to the local art magazines. These edgy art magazines were an underground movement at the time in Switzerland. Eventually, after some success with the magazines, he gets his work included in local galleries. Small steps, over time, adding up, adding up, all the while living this bohemian lifestyle with his romantic partner, Lee Tobler. One of his most famous early works is called Child-Bearing Machine. It is a black and white etching, completed in 1965, when he was 25 years old. In this artwork, you see an anatomical view of the inside of a woman's reproductive system, hence the name Child-Bearing Machine. But the structure has been altered in some strange way. Firstly, there is one miniature baby shaped like a bullet, with shooting goggles on and uh, holding a rifle. This bullet baby is perched on something that resembles the spring mechanism of a pinball machine, or perhaps the inside of a revolver trigger mechanism. It looks like this bullet baby is ready to be shot out of what resembles the birth canal, and lining up under it are four more bullet babies of similar size and posture, each holding their own rifles. There also appears to be a sixth bullet baby which has just entered the chamber. It looks about an eighth the size of the others. Perhaps it is a zygote bullet baby. These strange bullet babies, they become something Giger revisits throughout his long career, at times depicting them in the cutaway anatomical view of a pistol, instead of a woman's anatomy. Now, he hit upon something that made many people pause and think or comment their own opinions. The painting which shows the cutaway of the pistol instead is called Birth Machine, completed in 1967, two years after the child-bearing machine. Giger has this to say about it. My paintings express all kinds of themes and often my feelings. Most of the time there is no message attached to them for example, the birth machine is a slice through of a Walther P38 pistol. You see the barrel, and instead of bullets, there are little men with large glasses. 
They sit there with a weapon in their hands. This weapon is a weapon with a magazine, and in that magazine are more pistols with magazines. This means that you can go deeper and deeper. With this, I wanted to illustrate the enormous population explosion which is happening. All unpleasant things come from the fact that there are too many people on this planet. He implies something very profound in an indirect way. Each one of the bullet babies is holding a rifle that also has more bullet babies inside of it, which are holding their own rifles with more bullet babies inside of them, right? It's like a symbolic fractal that goes all the way down and keeps going. You can interpret the meaning here in, in numerous ways. It can represent the nature of capitalism, how everything becomes a conveyor belt of goods that create more goods and more need for goods. You can see it as a commentary on overpopulation, that each person creates five more people. You can also interpret it as a commentary on violence and war. Violence begets violence, and so on. It was around this early age of 25 that we start to see Giger linking the human condition with the world of machines, a linkage that would continue to inform all of his work for the rest of his life. But his interests in this darker subject matter were still evolving, and over the next few years would grow more realistic, more bizarre, and more controversial. Part 2. The Birth of Biomechanics In 1966, at the age of 26, Giger finished two collections of ink illustrations that explore the dark corners of the human mind. One collection is called Shafts, the other is called A Feast for the Psychiatrist. Both collections are heavily influenced by Freudian psychoanalysis, similar to the influences that drove Salvador Dali's surrealist approach. But instead of the fantastical dream content that inspired Dolly's work, Giger's work is inspired by nightmares. In the documentary, Dark Star, Giger says, As you go through life, all sorts of things come to mind. Some of these ideas ended up in the Passages series. They were based on dreams I'd had that were so frightening, I found it hard to breathe. This is something that's reflected very strongly in my work." Unquote. In another interview, Giger says, The shaft pictures, which I began to produce around 1966, have their origin in my dreams. I was sleeping badly at the time and was pursued by nightmares. In the stairwell of my parents' house, in her was a secret window which gave on to the interior of the Three Kings Hotel next door, and was always covered with a dingy brown curtain. In my dreams, or nightly wanderings, this window was open, and I saw gigantic, bottomless shafts bathed in a pale yellow light. On the walls, steep and treacherous wooden stairways without banisters led down into the yawning abyss. Since I have taken to drawing these imaginary chasms, the window of my dreams has remained firmly and definitely shut. 
but another source of my fantasies was our cellar. Approached via an old and musty spiral stone staircase, it led into a vaulted corridor. As our neighbor, the hotel proprietor told me, there were two subterranean passages in her, which led from the bishop's palace and beneath the town. Part of one of these passages formed our cellar. The exit from the cellar of the hotel has previously been open, and anyone who dared could descend for quite a way. Sometime previously, however, it had been walled up, as there was danger of falling. I saw only the locked door, which inspired in me the most sinister imaginings. In my dreams, however, these passages were open and led into a monstrous labyrinth, where all kinds of dangers lay in wait for me. Almost every dream led me down the winding staircase into this magic world of the imagination, both attracting and intimidating me at the same time. Well, now it begins to make sense. If Dolly can paint the most lurid and fantastical content of his unconscious, inspired by dreams, why shouldn't Giger be allowed to paint the most bizarre and dark content inspired by nightmares? It is in these illustrations of the Shaft series and A Feast for the Psychiatrist that Giger fuses the human body with strange mechanical parts and presents this humanoid person in an unforgiving landscape. Side note, if you want to view any of the paintings or illustrations and photos related to what we're talking about in this episode, head over to my website where all of it is displayed on mjdorian.com forward slash codex. That's mjdorian.com forward slash C-O-D-E-X, and you'll find a whole bunch of good stuff there. Back to the episode. Take a look at two pieces from the Shaft series. First, Shaft 7. This shows an immensely deep corridor filled with shadow and wooden stairs without banisters. Floating through this lifeless space is a feminine figure, naked, with her eyes closed. Her arms are missing, and her thighs extend into a strange flowing mass of an insect-like spine. She seems to be flowing gracefully into this shadowy landscape. But here, notice Giger playing with fusing the human body with otherworldly elements. Then there is Shaft 5, another piece in the collection. Again, a lifeless and deep corridor landscape is seen. One can assume this is another area in the same environment we saw the feminine insect creature. Here we see a long table which seems to be fused with six cadaver-like humans, also without arms, each of their hips seemingly joined with a drawer of the long table. Their faces are obscured by gas masks and goggles. Are they willing participants? Did some bizarre creature take their limbs off and make them into a table? Even the table itself is missing a center, so it is entirely non-functional and would serve no purpose. Perhaps the gas masks are actually feeding tubes, keeping them alive as they continue to serve this hopeless enslavement. Here is a passage from Giger which gives us insight into his humanity. 
This may surprise some, but he is far from a psychopath. One of my most vivid memories stems from my days at the Zurich School of Applied Arts. A fellow student showed me some photographs in a book which I would rather never have seen. People seeing my pictures often think I must take pleasure in extreme cruelty, but up until then, I had only seen horror films in which wooden stakes were driven through the hearts of corpses, and that only acted. What my friend showed me, however, was considerably stronger stuff. It was a series of photos from 1904 showing the torture of the Emperor of China's murderer. The victim was skewered on a stake, and the mob which surrounded him were slowly cutting off all his limbs. I shall never forget the face of the impaled victim, convulsed in agony, nor the cruel grins of the spectators. These photos, which so gripped the French author, Georges Batille, that he was never to get away from them, shocked me as nothing ever before. My friend was delighted to have shown me something which affected me so profoundly. Unnerved, with the hideous sequence of images still before my eyes, I went to my room. My friend had indeed succeeded in impressing me so much that I was afraid to be alone. For a whole week, I tried to stay awake for as long as I could. I dreaded falling asleep because I was certain to dream about them. Not long afterward, I saw documentary films of atrocities carried out in the concentration camps. These forced the Chinese photos somewhat into the background, but my angst had significantly increased. The first impaled figure to fascinate me as a child was a living scarecrow in a local fairy tale, which I made my mother read me again and again. I think this stake-bound life, for whom redemption meant as soon a death as possible, plainly showed me the senselessness of existence, an existence better never begun. Many of my works reflect this state of hopeless enslavement which leaves no room for religious beliefs. This insight tells us a lot about Giger's art. As we shall see, Giger's paintings from the 70s onward always have a prevailing theme, which is to present the viewer an existential conundrum. We gaze at the scene, we scan the faces for signs of distress or pleasure, and we are left in ambiguity. Are we seeing a victim or a willing participant? Is this hopeless enslavement or willful engagement? Aside from the existential dilemma of that scenario and the psychological dilemma of Giger's own nightmares, there was also a very real historical dilemma occurring during those early years when Giger was finding his voice. There was the Cuban Missile Crisis, Giger's Paris agent, Bijan Alam, said this in an interview. There was a great fear of nuclear war at that time which reached its climax in 1963 with the Cuban crisis. People there feared that a nuclear war could break out and, as we knew from Hiroshima, monstrosities could be created by mutation. Giger was very much affected by this, and he called his first ink drawings the Atomic Children, 
as if a nuclear war had taken place and left amputees and monstrosities created by radiation. Unquote. The art piece Bijan refers to is, is called The Atomic Children, dated 1967. In one interview with Kaleidoscope magazine, Giger even considers it his first artwork. Perhaps what he is implying is that in it, he began to discover his voice and likely noticed that people responded to the symbolism he was using with great enthusiasm and intrigue. In The Atomic Children, we again see the use of gas mask hoses, but this time they are seemingly fused to the skeletal faces of the two strange figures standing in the center. These two human figures are missing arms, and both only have one leg. Their skins seem to have peeled away to reveal the musculature of their bodies, which, when presented in this monochromatic style, looks oddly machine-like. This may have been intentional on Giger's part, or it may have been a happy early discovery that when organic material is presented in a monochromatic style, it takes on machine-like undertones. The tubes from the facial gas mask appendage are connected to their respective hips. The landscape seems to be made of a tiled floor that stretches toward the horizon from which an unnatural sun orb seems to frame the two humanoids. The early surrealist influence is very clear in the use of this barren landscape. It is a detail you see in a lot of early Dali work and the work of other surrealists. The figure on the lower right of the painting especially calls to mind a few seated figures from Dali's paintings, which often also have their back to the viewer. We can see Giger taking all these influences and mixing them, evolving them, continually growing his visual language. But it is in 1972 that his art reaches a new and unparalleled level. It is in that year that he discovers the airbrush, a strange mechanical device that shoots paint at an object in a focused mist. Traditionally, the airbrush it was associated with car customization and industrial design, but Giger turns this unlikely instrument toward his canvas and begins to spray. The work that follows, beginning in the 1970s, firmly cements him as the first artist in history to elevate the airbrush, placing it on the level with traditional art mediums like oil paint that had been the standard for 500 years. It's at this point in our study of H.R. Giger that we should take a slight detour, which will help us better understand how we will arrive at his infamous style. Have you ever stumbled on a unique thought and wondered if anyone else has ever had that same thought? For example, the other day I was looking at a leafless tree with its branches stretching up into the sky and I thought, hmm, that tree really looks like veins. It looks like the veins of the human body. Maybe trees are like the veins of the earth stretching into the sky. And then I wondered if anyone else has ever stumbled on that particular thought. Now, it's not an especially remarkable one, but it's a little unique, and it helps illustrate something about our ability to have unique insights, which may or may not be shared by others. 
Now, to better understand this phenomena of unique thoughts, let's try this. It involves just a little imagination. Imagine we take all of the humans on Earth. We wrangle them all up and we hook up everyone's brain to a computer that scans everything. All of the thoughts a person thinks in their entire life. And then the computer draws out every thought like an immense map, a unique map for each person's brain. The map shows all the connections between thought areas like little roads, a little road that connects the knowledge of the color blue with the sky, a little road that connects the smell of fresh bread in the air with the knowledge that a bakery is nearby, and then thicker roads, roads that begin to act like highways that link up thoughts in areas that your brain travels most frequently. The ability to recognize your mother's face and voice would be a highway connection, the ability to reach your hand out and pick up a cup is a highway connection. Spelling your name is a highway as well. The highway connections are thoughts and areas of experience that you have had a lot of experience in. Skills are often these types of fast highway connections, mainly because you've put thousands of hours in traveling these specific neural paths over and over, refining them enriching their relationships throughout the course of your life. So let's now take these individual brain maps and start overlapping them, person to person, and see where similarities are, where people have shared experiences. For the most part, we can assume there are more similarities than differences, right? Most people, on average, share much of the same core experiences and thoughts learning to walk, speaking a language, taking a shower, eating, and so on. Then there are certain subgroups of people that share thought areas with each other, but not the rest of the world. For example, people who practice archery. The brain map for archery includes the physical movements, knowledge of different bows, and insights into good shooting technique. These things would be mapped out in the minds of people who practice archery, but not in average people. Now, the same can be said of any skills. So here is the reason why we are mapping out these countless brains. If you imagine seeing human thought in this way, you begin to notice that these maps, they make up a mental landscape, territories of travel that human brains have done and are doing. These dense complexities that show up in, in people's brains are like continents, states, cities, connected by roads and rivers and highways. The brain is mirroring the outside world, and the outside world is mirroring the brain. Weird, right? Now, this brings us back to creativity. Side note, for the sake of clarity, I'll refer to artists, inventors, cooks, athletes, anyone engaged in the creative act as creatives. So creatives are like explorers that travel into uncharted territories on that mental landscape. They start out from a point of common origin, like Nikola Tesla, first learning mathematics like everyone in college, then electrical engineering like all engineers, and then venturing out 
into the uncharted wilderness of his mind from that starting point of electrical engineering. With this theory in mind, we can agree that the discoveries that someone like Nikola Tesla makes from his vantage point on, on his brain map will be worlds away from those discoveries most people make without his brain mapping. For example, someone who is developing their knowledge in cooking, their insights into the field of cooking won't allow them to arrive at the insights of a Nikola Tesla, who would be far out there on the outskirts of the electrical engineering brain mapping. Do you see what I mean? So there is a certain logic to how the brain arrives at unique and culturally significant ideas, and it seems to occur when a brain ventures outside of a common brain mapping. As the mind ventures into the uncharted wilderness of one's own expertise. Which brings us back to H.R. Giger, an artist who many agree created works that seem to defy one's sense of time and space, artworks that defy categorization, artworks that have an internal logic and familiar symbols, yet do not feel of this world or of our commonly shared brain mapping. I suspect if you looked at Geiger's brain map, after that computer drew it out, you would see this shadow land disconnected from all commonly shared human experience, floating off in space by itself. A mental landscape far and away from the territory most people's brains travel. And this landscape would be connected not by little roads, but by highways, superhighways even, because Giger's entire life was devoted to works within that territory. He is king in that shadowland. He brings back treasures from that darkness for us to enjoy and view. Now, how far away can someone travel from the commonly shared brain mapping before they are just lost in space? or considered crazy. Is that what crazy is? Simply someone who has ventured so far outside of our commonly shared brain map that we have no frame of reference for their statements and views. What they say seems foreign to us because our brain cannot imagine what road or highway to travel to arrive at the same thoughts they are expressing. And it is likely this very reason why someone might look at a Giger painting and call it evil. They can't fathom what mental roads to travel to arrive there. Part 3. The First Muse Lee Tobler became Giger's first muse. She was a force of nature, with passions for theater and art that equaled Giger's own. Giger once said of Lee, she had an enormous vitality and a great appetite for life, unquote. But her mind also held dark corners. She suffered from severe depression throughout her life. Even when the two of them were living together, she might disappear for days at a time. On one occasion, Giger frantically looked for her on the highways out of fear that something had happened, eventually receiving a call from her three days later. Their romance was intense, but also complicated by drug abuse and promiscuity by both partners. 
She once famously said, I want my life to be short and intense. Unquote. In the documentary Dark Star, Giger tells us, We were together for nine years, and during this time, a lot of things from our relationship found their way into my images. We loved each other, and we were good together, but she sometimes suffered from bad depression, and I didn't seem to be able to help her much with my painting. Unquote. In 1974, Giger completed a large painting using his new airbrush technique. It signaled the beginning of his iconic style. The painting is called Lee One, L-I and the number one. It is a portrait of his muse, Lee Tobler. Her skin is milky white, and as you gaze into her eyes, her expression seems enigmatic. There is this beautiful haziness to her pupils, like a mist has gathered in her cornea. But all is not normal in this portrait. Everywhere surrounding her face, there are these strange bulbous protrusions. Horns seem to emerge from her forehead, extending out horizontally. Small skulls decorate the top of her head, calling up imagery of the Hindu goddess Kali. A snake seems to be slithering across her forehead. Some apparatus housing electrical tubes emerges outward from her neck. It all gives one the impression of some alien dream world where this figure holds dominion. At the base of her neck is a metal collar that bears her name, Lee. This is H.R. Geiger's most famous painting. I remember seeing this painting as a child. Tracing that impression backward, I, I realized it was at one point used as the cover art for a sci-fi video game. And that's where it left its mark on me. But it has appeared everywhere in our culture, from snowboards to magazines to t-shirts. It is almost as much a calling card for Giger as the melting watches are a calling card for Dolly. When Giger finished this painting, he must have taken a step back, admiring his work, and saw the promising new direction his art was heading. He anxiously waited for Lee to come by the house so she could see herself immortalized in this way. But when she saw it, she was furious, enraged. She took a knife and cut an X into it, the painting falling into four pieces on the floor. Giger took the destroyed painting and put it away. Colleagues later did convince him to try and fuse the parts of the painting back together, and he managed to do it with a few retouches. But on most prints of Lee One that you look up and that you can buy, you can still see what looks like a wrinkle that travels horizontally across her chin and the length of the piece, and that's one of the cuts that was repaired. Later that same year, he painted Lee again. He called this painting Lee Two. This one is the masterpiece that you usually see when Lee's mysterious face is staring back at you. Her expression no longer has the hint of a smirk that Lee one had. Her neck is no longer connected to a body. Her head is severed with a wire or a tube connecting into her. It seems to carry the implication that this large machine-like frame has fused with her head and is keeping it alive. The snake is still slithering on her forehead, this time approaching the center of her face, moving downward. 
with more pronounced skulls stacked on each other above, insect-like legs emerge from the sides of the skulls. Flanking the stack of skulls to the left and right are two humanoid creatures with glowing eyes, and you almost don't notice them when you first gaze into the painting. Both of these creatures, they are holding spray paint cans that are directed toward the skulls at the center. If you look closely at those faces, you can see that they have that fused gas mask tube that we saw in Giger's early ink work, like in The Atomic Children. All of these influences and symbols in his mind have continued growing over the years and taken on new life, their environment enriched in complexity. One of the most unsettling aspects of the painting are the insect-like claw-head creatures to the left and right of Lee's head. Here, Giger has managed to create something that is at once familiar yet unsettling, something that seems to be from a distant future yet contains the rusty metal framework that we associate with modern city life. Gazing back at Lee, her facial expression is a resolute stillness, a stoicism in the face of an unforgiving landscape. Perhaps one can read apathy in those eyes. Were both these Lee paintings some way inspired by the depression Giger saw her struggling with? The demons and snakes in her own mind? I believe the hidden purpose of art is to take the mundane and elevate it to the profound. In that sense, is it a stretch to assume that the symbolism of Lee One and Lee Two shows the struggle of mental disorder? and the paradox that our minds can sometimes become our greatest enemies. On May 19th, 1975, Lee Tobler committed suicide. In the house the couple shared, north of the city, she shot herself with Giger's own 5mm revolver, leaving a large note on the floor with one word, adieu. An old French word for goodbye. In Latin, it means to God. Giger was devastated. He remained living in that ivy-covered cottage for the rest of his life. The walls were painted black and the shutters permanently locked out the daylight. They say his work grew even darker and more twisted in the coming years. In the Dark Star documentary, Giger says, When she died, it was obviously an immense shock for me. It was an overwhelming experience. I can't put it into words. At the beginning, I felt like I'd never be able to cope with it. But after a while, I started painting again, and that helped me to, how can I put it, distance myself somewhat from her death. And then, of course, I had this feeling that something could have been done. The fear that maybe you're responsible for the death of your partner. It's a horrific experience.
Part 4. The Necronomicon. Despite Lee Tobler's tragic death, the 70s were a very productive decade for Giger's creative work. He was painting new works non-stop and achieving notoriety amongst the art underground as one of the darkest and most interesting new artists. It's during this decade he created the iconic paintings featured in his now infamous art book, Giger's Necronomicon. The title is based off an H.P. Lovecraft book called The Necronomicon. Lovecraft created a fictional book of spells known in magic circles as a grimoire. His Necronomicon is filled with references to monstrous old gods, their names, and how to summon them using certain sigils and spells. It must be again reiterated that Lovecraft invented the Necronomicon as a plot device, writing an entire book so that he could refer to it in his fictional stories, which often involve a mythology of old monstrous gods such as the famous Cthulhu. What is perhaps even more interesting than the book itself is the way glancing at its pages captures your imagination. Despite it being easy to prove that the book is a work of fiction, all New Age shops continue to carry it, and gullible people around the world continue to buy it with the assumption that Lovecraft must have based his version of the Necronomicon on an even more ancient book which has been lost to time. Although this makes for a fun urban legend, it holds no basis in fact. It is like this book so completely captures people's imaginations that they can't help but assume it must be real. Giger's 1977 art book was named in homage to Lovecraft's infamous grimoire, partially because of the implication that unknown monsters and gods would be awaiting the eager viewer who dared to open it. I think part of the art book's success was due to the effect that the 60s era had on America and the world. In the climate following the anti-war, love and peace for all era, Geeker's art must have looked like a nightmarish revelation. Let's take a look at the painting which cemented his reputation as a supposed Satanist. The Spell 4. As Giger mentioned in a quote earlier, he was fascinated by the symbolism of witchcraft and black magic. In the spell 4, he uses the richly symbolic figure of Baphomet as his central character. That's spelled B-A-P-H-O-M-E-T. This is a creature you've likely seen, uh, most often depicted sitting, cross-legged, a fusion of parts goat legs connected to a woman's naked body, and a goat head with long extended horns. We should first try to understand this strange occult figure before tackling the nuances of Giger's larger image. Baphomet is a symbol with a long history in Western esoteric and magic traditions. It is not specifically satanic, although recent Christian interpretations project that association for the simple fact that his head is a goat, and often a goat head is shown within an inverted pentagram, notoriously a symbol of evil or Satanism. Now, when we say magic in this context, 
we are specifically referring to the practice of magic through spells, rituals, and talismans with the purpose of affecting the nature of reality. This type of magic, it has a long-standing tradition in all cultures of the world. In Western culture, we can confidently even trace its roots throughout the Middle Ages of Europe, from which historians find real spell books called grimoires that instruct the user in the summoning of supernatural forces to your aid. For simplicity's sake, we can say white magic deals with summoning angels and speaking with gods for selfless purposes, like blessings and healings, while black magic deals with summoning demons and binding them to you for personal gain, things like riches or protection. These magic practices go back much further. Even in Western culture, there, there is a fascinating genuine text from the first century, not a fabricated text like Lovecraft's uh, Necronomicon. Uh, this one is called the Testament of Solomon. It describes King Solomon building his temple with the assistance of demons, which he commanded through a magical ring that was entrusted to him by the Archangel Michael. This is what makes this stuff so fascinating. Forget the Necronomicon. People have been consulting real grimoires and practicing rituals they believed were summoning real demons and angels for thousands of years. In a very real sense, Giger's art can be seen as pulling up imagery from that deep well of our collective unconscious, that hidden darkness which may lie dormant in every person, a deep well that we often only get glimpses of in our nightmares. It is important to also make clear that Placing an animal on a winged figure does not make that figure satanic. In the Bible, there are countless examples of angels appearing with various animal heads, ranging from a lion, an eagle, to an ox. What the Baphomet actually symbolizes is a union of the opposite energies of the universe. The infamous design we see today was illustrated by Eliphas Levy, a 19th century ceremonial magician and occult author. You can see that Union of Opposites theme in Levy's original illustration in the symbolic use of the arms, the right arm pointing upward as the left arm is pointing downward, symbolizing the old hermetic saying, as above, so below, also referencing the idea of divine wisdom descending to the terrestrial plane, as symbolized also in the tarot by the magician's card. Now the hands of Baphomet are, are each pointing at a white crescent moon above and a black crescent moon below, again a symbol of duality. Notice the mirrored symmetry of the crescent moons. They are images of each other, as if a mirror flipped them. That's going to come in soon with Giger's painting as well. Okay, but why the goat head, right? Levy understood that the practice of ceremonial magic has its roots tracing back all the way before Greece and into Egypt. It is believed that the practice of alchemy actually originates in ancient Egypt as well. Levi uses the head of an Egyptian god named Banabjedet, who represents the soul of Osiris and has a goat's head. Finally, on Baphomet's arms, we also see Latin words, which say coagula and solve. These mean to join together and to take apart, which is the process by which order becomes chaos 
and vice versa, a philosophy that is integral to all schools of magic. Now that gives us a brief background to the goat-headed Baphomet symbol. So let's bring that understanding back into our exploration of Giger's painting, The Spell Four. The next thing to notice is the incredible symmetry and balance that Giger achieves in the composition. Many of his paintings from this period have this specific kind of structural balance. There's actually a term for it. It's called axial symmetry. A-X-I-A-L. Symmetry. It may be something he picked up from industrial design. The idea in axial symmetry is that every major element in a composition is counterbalanced on its opposite side by a mirror image of itself. Take, for example, if I had a painting, and on the left side I painted a big banana. To create axial symmetry, I would then paint another banana on the right side that was flipped, a mirror image of the one on the left. Now, there are no bananas in Giger's paintings, but every major element, object, or figure in the spell four is perfectly counterbalanced by another object or figure on the opposite side of the painting. From top to bottom, from side to side, and even the diagonals have this curious effect. It's clear that this was a deliberate choice, and it reminds me of religious designs I often see in cathedrals. Now, notice the white pentagram on the left side balanced by the black inverted pentagram on the right side. He even included a snake winding its way through the center of both pentagrams for balance. He is playing with the symbols here, freely exploring them. I think Giger is marveling at their effect to impress awe and fear in himself just as much as they do in us. The humanoid female figures under each pentagram seem to be in either a birthing position or, or a sexual position, with some device entering their vagina. To my mind, it implies this idea that whatever this large apparatus we are seeing is doing, it is drawing power from the creative force present in all women. It is harvesting that cosmic spark of creation that is present inside women's bodies, perhaps as the source of energy which powers both dualities of creation, the positive and negative, life and death, good and evil, time and space, all being powered by the energy of life, the same spark of creation that manifests life from a cellular egg inside a woman. Then there is the white ghostly princess that straddles the top of Baphomet's head. In sexual union with this ancient goat symbol that traces its roots to pre-Christian times, back to Egypt. Does she look in pain? Does she look enslaved? No. She wears a richly decorated headdress and holds a dagger in each hand, extended across to echo the shape of a pentagram. She looks empowered. She looks to be in control and in a transcendent state. Is this an echo of Lee Tobler again? It matches the symbolic use of the glowing white skin and the headdress. It even has an echo of Leonardo da Vinci's famous Vitruvian man, except in this case, a woman. But I think it can also be seen as one of Geiger's other fixations, ancient Egyptian art. When he was a boy, his sister had brought him to the local museum. They went into the basement 
and there was an Egyptian princess mummy on display. When he saw it, he was terrified, and his sister laughed at him. He returned to the museum to gaze at that mummy every Sunday, to face this mixture of fear, awe, and fascination, and to try and overcome it. His wife, Carmen Maria, claims it is part of his character to always face his fear until he overcomes it. She says, It's obvious this experience had a huge impact on him because it is present in all of his work, the feminine and the sublime, the figure of the princess. Then you have the mummy, that's the Egyptian element. And then you have death, the bones and the sense of eternity inherent in death. Unquote. The Egyptian princess mummy. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Looking back at the Lee paintings, the other paintings in the Spell series, in the Necronomicon book, looking at his album covers, his Biomechanoid series, the Egyptian princess mummy is everywhere, often with some form of a headdress. It's so fascinating that this symbol hit him so hard as a child, and he kept revisiting it throughout his whole life. In the Dark Star documentary, he tells us, I don't paint these kind of images because I indulge in it, but because they scare me so much. When I put it on canvas, I have some command, I have some control over it. It is healing for me." Unquote. H.R. Giger pulls up the old monstrosities, the gods of our shadows, from the deepest layer of our unconscious, and he fuses them with our modern architecture, our metal skyscrapers, our weapons, our sexuality, and our relationship with birth and death. If you are made uncomfortable by a Giger painting, it is not because he has endeavored to shock you, it is because you are afraid to admit that these beasts are a reflection of all of us. They are a reflection of humanity on its darkest days. Having looked at Giger's paintings for dozens of hours over the last month, I can't help but see humanity in them. Our bizarre sense of entitlement to the resources of this earth, our disregard for animal life on this planet, and our habitual apathy toward our fellow humans. If you are disturbed, well, you damn well should be. As beautiful and unique as human beings are, they can be equally depraved and monstrous. But paradoxically, in opening up yourself to accepting these shadows in your own psychology, you can take the next important step. Rather than ignoring them, you can decide to take responsibility for them. Rather than pushing them back in repulsion and fear, back into the shadows where they can gather strength, you integrate them in a positive way back into yourself, in a way where they are in service to a greater good. This was the message of psychoanalysts like Carl Jung, and it is the message of visionary artists like H.R. Giger.
Well, I hope you enjoyed that journey into the abyss with me. I can't think of another artist who has so devotedly explored its depths than H.R. Giger. And there really is so much more about his work to talk about, which I simply could not fit into this episode without distorting my overall message. I wanted to explore this idea that an artist can take a journey on their mental map as their aesthetic evolves. And it's this mental journey that really separates them from their contemporaries. It is also this mental journey on that brain map we mentioned that can confuse some audiences as they struggle to understand how an artist arrived at that place. It's a curious double-edged sword. Journey far enough away from common shared experience and you are just misunderstood and crazy. But journey just the right sweet spot distance and you are hired to do the visual art for a Hollywood film and you win an Academy Award. Speaking of which, I began producing this with the intention of spending half the episode on the work Giger did for the Ridley Scott film Alien in 1980, which won him the Academy Award. But there is honestly so much already out there about that production you can easily watch or listen to, and focusing on Giger's work as it fit into his own artistic vision, it seemed to give the artist the respect he is due. Honestly though, that entire Alien collaboration deserves its own full-length episode. There is so much to say about that collaboration and about the unlikely coincidences that led to his participation in the film. Coincidences that involve some other creative heavyweights like Alexander Yodorovsky and Salvador Dali. So that is for another day, another episode. But I will mention this fun tidbit. When Ridley Scott was in pre-production stages for the Alien film, he hadn't yet secured a visual artist who could bring the vision to life. Then one of his colleagues, Dan O'Bannon, brought him Giger's Necronomicon. As Ridley Scott was flipping through the pages, he arrived at a painting called Necronom 4, and he damn near fell out of his chair. He said, this is it, this is the Alien. He was so convinced from that moment that Giger needed to be the set designer and lead visual artist that he went through the arduous trouble of convincing the producers that the project could only be accomplished by Giger. The producers were rightfully doubtful, as Giger was for all purposes a Hollywood outsider, he didn't have any experience in Hollywood films, and to them he was just some weird visual artist who barely spoke English. But Ridley Scott was so convinced by the creature depicted in that painting, Necronom 4, that there could be no other option. Go check that one out. It's also available on my website, as all of these illustrations and paintings are, as well as photos of Giger and Lee Tobler. That site is mjdorian.com forward slash codex. mjdorian.com forward slash C-O-D-E-X. Another fun tidbit that didn't fit anywhere is this. Do you know what music H.R. Giger really loved most? Looking at his paintings, I think we all assume it must have been black metal, just blasting in the studio as he's working. Uh, Europe is also pretty well known for that scene, and the paintings all look like black metal album covers. But nope. Giger loved jazz. Yep, jazz. 
He would often put on jazz records as he was painting, and even liked to tinker on the piano playing jazz tunes, if you can imagine that. The man is full of surprises. Speaking of music, on a personal note, I just released a new composition. You can listen to it on Spotify and Apple Music. It's called Agnus Dei, and you can find it under my artist name, MJ Dorian. Please follow me on Spotify and check out some of the other songs. If you dig this podcast, I know you'll dig them. And the new song, Agnus Dei, is going to sound a tad bit familiar to you, as snippets of it have been used occasionally in this podcast. But now you can hear it in full. Also, if you have been digging the podcast and want to support it in some way, please leave a nice review for it in Apple Podcasts. This will really help us with discovery and with helping the podcast to grow. The next episode will be another installment in my conversation series in which I sit down with an artist, musician, or creative whom I admire, and we talk shop about creativity, creative process, their history, and all good, interesting insights. So stay tuned for that. In closing, I'd like to leave you with this thought. If we expect an artist to provide us with valuable experiences, we have to give them the privilege to risk offending us. We have to open the door and allow them to enter the hidden passages of our mind. What a great artist will pull up from there will not be something they brought in, but rather an angel or a demon of our own creation. Till next time, this is Creative Codex. I am MJ Dorian. I do. Thank you.